There are 57 words in the original Lord's Prayer in the Greek language. That's a typical David Dunlop thought. Well, as Richard said, tonight we're going to look at the third clause. May your kingdom come. Well, the abbreviated way it's put in the Bible, your kingdom come. It's not going to be a sermon, I hope. You can tell me afterwards. It's not even going to be a Bible study. It's going to be more accurately a Bible search. Until I began to prepare for this evening, I hadn't really realized how much emphasis the scripture gave to the kingdom of God. So as I go through, I want to unpack some of the facts and the truths that I hadn't really thought about before. Now, I don't want to discourage you, never would want to discourage you from using your Bibles. But all the verses that I'm going to use, I'll put on the screen. And for the sake of those who are listening by recording, I will repeat them and give the, the Bible reference. I'll be doing a lot of Bible searching, and I'll be going fairly fast. But let's begin at the beginning. I'm putting on the screen the portraits, the pictures of six people. I haven't time for congregation participation. I'm sorry about that. I'm sure you could tell me who those six are. Well, I'll start you. They're all men. They're all kings. They're all mentioned in the Bible. They're all in the Old Testament except one. The last one. Who are they? Well, let me explain, especially for those listening and confused by recording. Number one is obviously Pharaoh. He may even be the Pharaoh who was on the throne when Moses and the children of Israel left Egypt, Ramses II, so we're told. The second one, Solomon, when the kingdom of Israel was at its height. A kingdom stretching from the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates River. And everything was gold. Even the shields of his soldiers were gold. Third one, he couldn't mistake, Nebuchadnezzar. That tyrant of Babylon, mentioned in the first four chapters of Daniel particularly. And there's his, is it an engraving? If it's contemporary, no wonder he's such a handsome man. Who would dare in Nebuchadnezzar's presence to say anything else about him? The bottom row, first one, Cyrus, the Persian. And he was the king who permitted the children of Israel to go back to their own land again. And he's called the servant of Jehovah, servant of God in the book of Isaiah. Fifth one, Alexander the Great, as frenetic as I had always pictured him to be. He is the one who's not named but described in Daniel chapter 8 as the goat that 
was hopping across very quickly from west to east. He conquered the whole world and wept that there was no more world to conquer and immediately died at the age of 32. And the final one, well, he's different. That's King Herod. Now, why did I put King Herod there? Because I couldn't put a Roman in. They didn't have kings. Remember, they had emperors. I thought of putting in uh, Caesar Augustus, obviously named in the Bible, but uh, he wasn't the king. Uh, Herod, of course, was just a puppet, a vassal. And his uh, whole power came from what was behind him, the great Roman Empire, stretching from Hadrian to Wall. don't think they ever did much in Ireland right across Europe through the Middle East. There are six kings, and they were the most powerful men of their time, except Herod. And they ruled over vast kingdoms, except Herod. And behind him was the whole of the Roman Empire. They were kings with their kingdoms. First question, what is a kingdom? Well, the very first dictionary I looked up gave me just the right answer. An organized community with a king at its head. So the kingdom of God that we are talking about this evening and which we pray about in the Lord's Prayer is an organized community with God at his head. God's rule, God's laws, God's authority, God's sovereignty. Second question. When did God's kingdom begin? Now another king gives us the answer to that because King David in Psalm 145 says very clearly, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. Yes, God has always been in control. Down through the ages Kings and kingdoms have emerged and disappeared. You saw six of them there. Up and gone. But God will always exercise his dominion. Let's take that truth away with us into the coming week. As we see a world that is so unstable, that changes so fast, that spirals down at an ever-increasing rate. 130 people killed in Baghdad today. But God is in control. He always is. He always has been. He always will. That's what I call the upward aspect of the kingdom. We raise our eyes up and we praise God that whatever's happening on earth, Lord, you are in control. Now, you may be asking, and I hope you are, if God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, why, why do we pray, may your kingdom come? Well, somebody said before we started, the kingdom is a big subject. I'll try and confine myself. God chose the nation of Israel as the people through whom he would bring the redemption of the world. And through his prophets... God promised that the kingdom of God would sometime in the future be revealed in a new form and would gradually 
develop and expand. And gradually that expectation developed in Israel. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. We all know that as a a chorus from Handel's Messiah. And of course it's about the Messiah, the Promised One, the Coming King. It's a direct quotation from Isaiah chapter 9. And verse 7 of that chapter goes on. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. The prophecy and promise of a future king and a future kingdom. Now, that was Isaiah. 200 years later, when the kingdoms of Israel and Judah had disappeared and Daniel was standing there in front of Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream. You remember the dream of an image, head of gold down to feet of iron and clay. And Daniel was interpreting the dream for him. Four kingdoms coming. We've seen them on the screen already. And in Daniel 2, verse 44, he says to mighty Nebuchadnezzar, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those other kingdoms we've talked about and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. Richard already referred to Daniel's great vision that he himself was given of four beasts coming one after the other out of the sea. Four kingdoms and one like a son of man approaching the ancient of days and being led into his presence. The ancient of days. And Daniel was told he was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. Listen. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Shades of Psalm 145. Here was the prospect of a future kingdom that God would establish. And one unlike the kingdoms of the Babylonians, the Medes and Persians, the Greeks and the Romans. One which would not pass away. I have time only to give testimony of two Old Testament prophets. There have been many, many more. But let's, let's come quickly into the New Testament. Do you remember what John the Baptist began to preach? Just after the birth of Jesus has been recorded in Matthew chapter 2. In chapter 3 we begin with In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And in the next chapter, chapter 4 of Matthew, when Jesus heard that uh, John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee, we're told, and took up John's call. 
From that time on, Jesus began to preach exactly the same. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So, next question. When was this long-awaited kingdom of God established? Well, later on in Matthew chapter 4, we read of Jesus calling his first disciples and then exercising a threefold ministry. We're told Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And once, when the Pharisees were charging him with casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, he said to the Pharisees, Ah, no. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. And another occasion, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he said to them very clearly, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. They were looking for their particular brand of Messiah, you see. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. And what Jesus was saying, and here I'm quoting Martin Lloyd-Jones, Nigel, from last century. What Jesus was saying is this, the kingdom of God is here now. I am exercising this power, this sovereignty, this majesty. This is the kingdom of God. So while the kingdom of God is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures throughout all generations, Psalm 144 again, in a second sense, the kingdom of God had come when Jesus came. And throughout his ministry, he continued to preach about the kingdom. I thought I'd list some of his parables. He he had about 40 parables on the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. By the way, those two terms are exactly the same, used by different gospelers uh, in different ways, but exactly the same. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Here we have a, a list of, well, about a dozen of them. Farmer sowing seed, a man finding treasure, a woman needing dough, a fisherman's net, a man forgiven a debt, a wedding guest who forgot his jacket, Virgins waiting for a bridegroom, a landowner being generous, a seed, a pearl, a banquet, vineyard, yeast. Many, many more. Because it was mainly through parables that Jesus taught the good news of the kingdom. Now, we all know that at the end of three years of preaching the good news of the kingdom, Jesus was crucified, died, was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. Quoting from the Apostles' Creed. But do you remember how he spent his time between his resurrection and his ascension? Well, Luke tells us the beginning of the book of Acts. Acts 1 verse 3. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men, his disciples, And gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, listen, and spoke about the kingdom of God. And he commissioned them to be his witnesses right to the ends of the earth. 
a little aside. To me, here is one of the most disappointing episodes in the account of the disciples' life with Jesus. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And what was their immediate reaction? What did they say? The next verse tells us, they asked him, Lord, are you going at this time to restore the kingdom to Israel? I find that amazing. Remember that the Jews at that time hated Roman rule. The religious and nationalist emotions constantly flared up in Judea. Because they had a a nationalistic hope that when the Messiah appeared, he would drive out the occupying power and restore the kingdom to Israel. But the disciples should have known better. Because right through his ministry, right up to his crucifixion, Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of heaven had been very clear. As he had said to the, the Pharisees. And at his crucifixion, Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Remember his answer? My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. And the disciples still hadn't got it. But back to the development of God's kingdom. And this is not another aside. You remember the time when Jesus asked his disciples... Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. That's in Matthew 16, verse 14. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And immediately came Simon Peter's answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was Peter's great confession. And he won our Lord's highest praise for discerning Jesus' true identity. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Referred to this morning, Joel. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Some of you will notice a slightly different marginal translation of that verse. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Words which have become the basis for a whole system belief. Peter. In an apostolic succession. But how should we interpret them? To me it's very simple. Peter was to become the person who would unlock the way into heaven. Not literal keys like the medieval uh, artists seem to think, or just, well, they had to put something concrete down on canvas, I suppose. But Peter would become the person who would unlock the way into the kingdom, and what he said and did would have been sanctioned in heaven. So, on the day of Pentecost, to Jews from all over the known world, Peter said, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And on that day, you know, over 3,000 Jews responded from all over the known world. The door of the kingdom had been unlocked to the Jews and Peter had been the man appointed by God to do it. And then, 
God commissioned Peter to speak to the household of Cornelius. Cornelius, a Roman centurion, a Gentile. And we read that Peter told that large gathering, because it was a large gathering of Gentiles, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And here's the interesting bit to me. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. And the circumcised believers, the Jews who had come with Peter, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. So through Peter, the door to the kingdom of God was open to all nations and all generations. It was established in the days of the apostles and it is a present reality. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you belong to two kingdoms. And I'm taking in those people who come from the Republic or from America or anywhere else that don't have a king. One is an earthly, temporary and very imperfect nation or kingdom. But nevertheless established and sustained by God. The other kingdom to which we belong is heavenly, eternal, and perfect. So, what do we mean when we pray, may your kingdom come? When, when Jesus told us, and again, Joel was referring to this this morning, when Jesus told us, don't worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we wear? Or what shall we drink? He wasn't saying those things weren't important. He was dressing a higher priority. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. So when we pray, may your kingdom come. We are number one praying, Lord, help me to get my priorities right. May your kingdom become an increasing reality in my life. Your sovereignty, your rule, your will, your word for me. Help me to acknowledge you as king in all the decisions and choices I make. Help me to live in accordance with with the principles of your kingdom. That's what I call the inward aspect. But secondly, when we pray, may your kingdom come, there is an outward aspect. We're also saying, Lord, I want to see the good news of your kingdom being preached. And people not only hearing and understanding, but coming to you in repentance and in faith. Remember when the locals came to Jesus, he'd been out praying all night and they found him and tried to keep him from leaving them. He said in Luke chapter 4, I, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also because that's why I was sent. We should have the same sort of attitude. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus. I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. So, when we pray, may your kingdom come, we are praying for the spread of God's kingdom across 
our land and across the world. Involved in May Your Kingdom Come is the work of our missionaries. We need to pray that the whole Windsor missionary family doing their various ministries will find God's blessing spreading his kingdom across this world of ours. That is the outward aspect. Because Jesus said to his disciples, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? It's like a mustard seed. A mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants. Matthew chapter 4. So that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. Planting a seed. That's it. And I put that little picture up in the corner because it's the one that Sandra, Sandra Boone, included in a recent prayer letter about the work of the Green Pastures Hospital in Pokhara. Well, I quote from her prayer letter. One of the most beautiful aspects of the site are the huge ancient trees, just as they develop from small seeds. So the work of the hospital grew from very small beginnings to what it is today, 53 years on. And she adds, may we have faith, like a mustard seed, in, continuing, in God's continuing grace over the next 53 years. That's the outward aspect of the kingdom. And there's one final aspect, to may your kingdom come. When his disciples asked Jesus about the future, he said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, the outward aspect. And then the end will come. Then the end will come. Because the kingdom is not only a present reality, it's a future certainty. And then his great statement in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection, our resurrection, as well as the Lord's resurrection, Paul says, then the end will come. When he, Jesus, our Lord, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. And Peter, in his second letter, chapter 1, says, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Then the end will come. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So when we pray, may your kingdom come, we are also praying, praying for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're praying for the final end of Satan, of sin, of evil. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. That is the onward aspect of the kingdom. So, summarizing. 
When I pray, when you pray, may your kingdom come. I'm praising God that his dominion is an everlasting dominion. He's always in control. That's the upward aspect of the kingdom. When I pray, may your kingdom come, I am desiring God's kingly authority to rule in my own life. That's the inward aspect of the kingdom. When I pray, may your kingdom come, I'm praying for the the spread of the good news to the hearts of individuals locally and worldwide. That's the outward aspect of the kingdom. When I pray, may your kingdom come, I am prayerfully anticipating Christ's return. That's the onward aspect of the kingdom. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus.